Good morning. I'm Dan Torres, and uh, uh, Pastor Ray wanted me to introduce the uh, Joe Light. We'll be bringing God's word to us today. Said I could say whatever I want. <laughs> so, so I really don't know him, but uh, out of my eight wonderful great grandchildren, or great or grandchildren, not great, uh, Tara and Joe have three of them, and. Uh, it has uh, been a blessing to see them raise their children in God's path. And as I see a lot of that going on here, and kids coming and getting baptizing and walking in the Lord, being guided by their parents. So that is just a, a wonderful blessing to, to see and uh, what God calls us to do. So uh, we will pray for the word and Joel Light will bring us God's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you. Uh, what a privilege to be in your house, Lord. And uh, we pray for the word, Lord, that we will listen to your word and not only listen, but be doers. And uh, that you will bless uh, the word as it goes out. And Lord, that we can be a light for those around us, for their community, Lord, for our neighbors, our friends, and even our enemies. We thank you this day, Lord. And in your blessed name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning. As Dan said, I'm Joel Light and uh, my wife Tara and our three children, Bennett, Hudson, and, and Phoebe. We have been coming at, to Northbridge since uh, around the time Bennett was uh, just a baby and he's 13 years old. So um, time flies and uh, especially, I guess, when you're having fun, they say. Um, I've been told today that it is John Kramer's birthday. So happy birthday, John. We appreciate you. We really do. So such a blessing to us here, um, all the music you do and uh, how you just coordinate all the worship. And uh, thank you for that. So and happy birthday. All right. Um, well, before we get started uh, in Philippians chapter three, we're, let's, uh, let's, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your goodness to us. We thank you that uh, you are um, perfect true God, Lord, and uh, we just ask that uh, you would work on our hearts this morning as we open your word, Lord, soften our hearts to, uh, to what uh, you have for us here in your word, to the truths you have, to the life-changing, heart-transforming uh, truths uh, that are in your word, Lord. Uh, may my words be um, not my own, but uh, we just ask that you would speak uh, through me um, and uh, as we look at, uh, at your word. Pray all this in your name. Amen. All right, so we're in Philippians, uh, the third chapter. And uh, when I was young, um, one of the things that uh, was taught to me is how to remember where Philippians are is uh, the Go Eat Popcorn acronym. So think about Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Go Eat Popcorn. And that uh, has helped me remember that, so hopefully that helps you as well. And in Philippians chapter 3, we've been working through that uh, since, I think this past fall it's been, and uh, a number of the, the guys in the church have been, have been working through the different chapters of Philippians, and um, now it is my turn and my pleasure and my privilege to be in uh, Philippians chapter 3. Um, we will continue through Philippians um, over the next couple months, and, and a couple more guys will come up and, uh, and will complete the book of Philippians. So um, in this section of Philippians, um, I'd like to uh, 
propose to you uh, a thesis about what this uh, section is saying. And that thesis is that um, Christ is the only thing in this world that we can rely on. So Christ is the only thing in this world that we can rely on. You think about that, um, how many of us rely completely on Christ? Any hands? Any perfect hands? No, I don't see any. Good, because I'm not raising my hand either. Um, I think a lot of us, um, as Christians, even if you're here, um, you don't know Christ and you're, think, you're trying to figure out what this is all about, um, know that nobody in here relies completely on Christ. So we're all um, a work in progress in that way. God's working on, on all of us. Um, but I think the, what we do rely on is something other than, than Christ then, right? If that isn't true of all of us, then the opposite of that must be true in some degree um, of all of us. So what is it we rely on? Um, well, we rely on ourselves, right? With that statement of, I got this, right? Um, I can rely on myself, um, you know, and I think what things that go along with that are, you know, education is the, is the key to success in life. Um, accomplishments are what can make me happy. Um, the more adversity I overcome, the stronger I get, and, and then with that, the more I can shape my own destiny. Um, so we have relying on ourselves, or, or sometimes we have this, we, we also have this, this, um, this idea of we have got this, right? Like, we, the human spirit working together with others is something that will lead us to a better place. So we have got this, right? Humanity has got this thing. Innovation and technology will solve any problem. The solution is just right around the corner. I can see it. It's just right there. We just, we just got to develop it and get there. Um, we just need to invest in the future, right? And we have got this. If we work together, we embrace our differences, then we can accomplish anything. Love, love triumphs over all. Uh, this collective human love dissolves all conflict and glues us together for our future, right? We have got this. So um, I have got this. We have got this. Some kind of collection of that is, uh, is where I uh, propose that we, we really are in some, in some way, shape, or form. But that's not where God wants us to stay. God wants us to uh, rely only on Christ. All right, so let's turn your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe, to you, is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, so with this verse, with these verses, I um, propose five points. Uh, Paul instructs to rejoice in the Lord. Paul commends frequent remembering of what Christ has done. Paul was rescued by the righteousness of Christ. Paul is being made more like Christ by sharing in the suffering of Christ. And Paul will do whatever it takes to attain the resurrection from the dead. Before his conversion, Paul was working to attain his salvation, like a work-to-own program. Paul's eyes are opened, and he sees that he doesn't have to work for righteousness, but that Christ has already done the work and gifted Paul ownership. Paul goes on to look forward to becoming more like Christ through suffering and ultimately being rid of sin and being with Christ forever. Paul says earlier in the letter, in chapter 1, verse 6, that God will finish what he starts in believers. And Paul is looking forward to the finishing of this work in his resurrection. All right, so let's go to start at the beginning. Let's go to verse 1. Um, it says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. All right, so rejoice in the Lord. We're going we're gonna to look at that a little bit further. Um, let's, as we look at that, we've got to look at the context of what's going on in the lives of Paul, in the lives of the Philippians, and in the world at this time. And we see from Scripture, different places, that uh, Paul is in jail in the Roman Empire, capital city of Rome, with a likely death sentence. Paul and Silas were once jailed um, in the city of uh, Philippi for exercising a demon of a slave girl who uh, made her owner money telling fortunes. Likewise, the Philippians are being threatened and persecuted because of their faith in uh, Christ. Strife and persecution are coming from other churches and outside the church. The people of the Philippian church are anxious for Paul, and Paul is worried about them. Communication takes weeks, and for all they know, Paul could already be dead. So naturally, in this letter, Paul tells them to rejoice. Right, who, who wouldn't want to rejoice? Um, it sounds like a great time to be a follower of Christ, right? Sounds like a good time. But his calls to rejoice are because of who the Lord is and what the Lord is doing. Rejoicing in the Lord and what he is doing is often um, really hard because it goes against the sin-impacted desires of our heart. It's hard for us, and it's hard for the Philippians. The rejoicing Paul is calling them to is not a, a conjured rejoicing of happy thoughts, energetic vibes, good food, and exciting company. Paul calls them to rejoice in something eternal, something everlasting, something inherently good, nurturing, protecting, loving, and relational. Paul tells them to rejoice in the Lord because he is good. And for those who love God, all things work together for good. Let's uh, get comfortable saying with each other, rejoice in the Lord. All right, can we all say it together? Rejoice in the Lord. Great. 
Um, the remainder of chapter 3 and 4 we could look at as reasons for Christians that they have for rejoicing in the Lord, right? And Nick um, gave us reasons for rejoicing in the Lord, right, earlier. He gave us a, a good list of reasons we have for rejoicing in the Lord. Um, and we, we, in the rest of uh, chapters 3 and 4, here are some of the things that are talked about. In Christ, we have righteousness through faith in Christ. In Christ, we will be resurrected from the dead. In Christ, we have citizenship in heaven. In Christ, our bodies will be transformed to be like the glorified body of Christ. In Christ, the Lord is at hand, so we don't need to be anxious over anything. In Christ, God will guard our hearts and minds. In Christ, Paul has everything he needs, including the help of the Philippians. So we say, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing is not just a verbal praise, but it's a condition of the heart. Uh, Romans uh, chapter 10, verse 10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. All right, so we'll continue on in verse 1. It says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So here we see um, that we're called to, Paul's calling them to recite the, work, the Lord's work. Recite the Lord's work. Paul has told these things to the Philippians before. This is not new. This is not a new conversation that, uh, that they're having. This is uh, something they've rehashed before. The Philippians and Paul have an intimate relationship that's been fostered over years of in-person interaction and through correspondence. This, the Philippian church was the first church in Europe that Paul founded. The church had sent supplies and provisions to Paul while he was about his work planning churches in the area. And the intimate language um, throughout this letter lets us know that this was a close relationship that was built over years of interaction. This, uh, think of this as kind of a very close missionary and supporting uh, church relationship within an adversarial cultural climate. In addition, the supporting church is also being missionaried um, by Paul. You can imagine the closeness that this would foster. So why tell them again? Well, um, we are forgetful people, and the Bible is full of examples of forgetting God or forgetting the commands of God and the goodness of God and, or the works of God. Um, when we uh, did our call to worship this morning, John Ledison talked about the, the uh, Hebrew people as they were led out of, of Egypt. What did it say that, that they did? They forgot, right? They forgot all the works, even though they saw them with their own eyes. They forgot the works that God did, and they went in their own direction. These stories sometimes end with repentance and restoration uh, of that relationship with God, but, and that's God's desire, repentance and restoration. Psalm chapter 50, verse 22, gives us a warning. It says, Mark this, mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be nothing to deliver. Right? Reminds us of that splitting in half, uh, the covenant relationship with, uh, with Abraham, right? Uh, let us, lest I tear you apart and there be nothing to deliver. Well, we, we look in Psalm uh, 103, verse 2 to 5, and that gives us encouragement. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. 
right? So here, um, again, we're told, forget not all his benefits, right? And then we're given what those benefits are. So this call to uh, remember, to repeat, to recite um, the Lord's work is important to us because sin dulls our minds and creeps through our hearts. In multiple places, the Bible tells us that our sin blinds us to the truth. We can't see the truth or hear it or comprehend it because of sin. Retelling of who God is and what he has, is, and will do is an antidote to this poison. We need reminded over and over. And throughout this letter, Paul reminds the Philippians and us for the reasons for rejoicing in the Lord. We can say that reminding each other should be no problem for anyone who claims to follow Christ and will benefit the hearer. All right, um, as we think about um, the, next, uh, the next section, we think about relying on Christ only, relying only on Christ, right? And some, some one of the things that re- that reminded me of is, is um, in the Dig and Discover principles, this idea of remaining on the line, right? So as we rely only on Christ, sometimes we can add to Christ or add to the line, um, or we can take away from Christ or take away from the line. So like that idea for those of you that are familiar with the Dig and Discover principles through our small groups of remaining on the line or, or relying only on Christ. So remaining on the Christ line can be helpful. All right, so let's, um, let's go to verse 2. It says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. All right, so look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is a warning against um, adding to the gospel. This is a warning against legalism. Um, If you add to the gospel, then you don't really understand the gospel, and that's legalism. Adding performative requirements to the perfect life of Christ and his subsequent death, burial, and resurrection. That's legalism. They're additive. Or they're, I'm sorry, they're added, but they're not additive, right? It's like adding salsa to ice cream. It was perfect, and now you've ruined it, right? <laughs> not that either of those things are good, but together, they don't add up. They don't make it better than either one individually. The Judaizers, the Judaizers which is what they're describing here in verse 2, they want to add Christ to the ceremonial commands of the Old Testament, such as circumcision, festivals, sacrifices, and food regulations. Not only did they not understand what Christ did, they also didn't understand the purpose of the Old Testament law. Paul refutes the Judaizers multiple times in the New Testament writings. Um, Paul asked the Galatians in in chapter 3, verse 2, a very direct question. He said, Did you receive the Holy Spirit by working out the law yourselves or by hearing with faith? It's a very direct question. And the Galatians likely knew the answer, but they hadn't connected all the dots yet. So in Galatians 3.10, Paul goes on and helps them connect those dots by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26, when he says, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by, and that word abide by is this idea of accepting, all things written in the book of law, and do them. Right? So there's two things there. Paul is showing them that they, in order to be righteous, one, they must not only accept all the things written into the law, but they also um, must have done every single one of them. 
Some say, you know, Paul, some might say that Paul is exaggerating here. It can't be possibly correct that he um, is saying that everyone who has ever lived has to be perfect to be in the presence of God. That sounds like an impossible task, a bar set cruelly high. Well, let's go to Matthew um, chapter 5, verse 17, and see what Jesus has to say about this. Matthew chapter 5, 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus not only confirms what was written in Deuteronomy, but gives examples of groups of, the, of his time that were seen as exceedingly righteous. Did you know that Paul was an active member of the Pharisees before his conversion? So the standards we self-righteously use to justify our own righteousness are actually meant to point us to our complete lack of ability to be righteous. We need something else to cleanse us. We need Christ. The language Paul uses of dogs is a reference to what the Jews called the Gentiles. Dogs were not uh, pets back then. They were nasty, kind of dirty scavengers um, in, in ancient times. They, the unclean language of the Old Testament ceremonial law was derogatory, derogatorily used for the Gentiles. Paul is turning this around and saying that the unclean one is actually the one who Christ says is clean on the outside, but filthy on the inside. The one who justifies themselves by what they do and not by what Christ does. Paul is warning the Philippians, don't go this way. Do not follow this path. Do not go down this road of thinking. And um, in, we'll continue in verse 3. Paul gives us, um, gives us some more and continues down this path. He says, For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Here Paul is explaining what they are, um, what they are uh, to do uh, to the righteousness of Christ, or it explains who they are, sorry, to, due to the righteousness of Christ in this section. Um, the circumcision, so that's what he starts out with. We are the circumcision. Um, this word is, is um, connected with the phrase, those who mutilate the flesh, earlier in verse 2. So why would Paul tell them not to go the path of those who circumcise and then call the Philippians the circumcision? Um, to figure this out, we have to go back to where we were just earlier, where Nick was in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And that word righteousness is the idea of blamelessness, right? Not, it's not a perfection he's talking about, but blamelessness. God then made a covenant to be the God of Abraham and his offspring. A bit later in Genesis chapter 17, God introduces circumcision as a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham in chapter 15. 
This was carried through the Old Testament Hebrew people as one of the ceremonial laws. Most of the time when we hear circumcision, we focus on the physical act of circumcision. But remember, this was a sign of a promise from a creator to creature. The fact that creator is interacting with created Abraham in Genesis 17 tells us that circumcision is not only about the physical. And Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 gives us further insight into this. It says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. In Jeremiah 6.10, it also gives us further insight. To whom shall I speak and give warning, that they may hear? Behold, the ears are, or their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. The Old Testament prophets here are connecting circumcision, not with being, um, with, with their connecting circumcision, with not being stubborn toward God, with being able to hear, accept, and do the instruction of God. Abraham, he got it. He understood it. In in, um, Genesis 15, Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Paul gets that circumcision is not primarily about the physical, but is a sign of the condition of the heart as well. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, circumcision is a matter of the heart. He says it directly. By the spirit, not by the letter. Circumcision was the covenant of Abraham way of identifying as a follower of Christ. Baptism is the covenant of of Christ way of identifying as a follower of God. Well, back to Philippians. Why did Paul say to the Philippians, we are the circumcision? while at the same time calling those who practiced physical circumcision mutilators of the flesh? Well, because it was a matter of the heart. Those who are in Christ by faith alone are no longer stubborn to the things of God. And those who mutilate the flesh are stubbornly resisting the words and work of Christ, while trying to work out their own salvation. They are looking back to the way things were and trying to add Christ to them. Instead of seeing that Christ fulfilled the past and is the present and future. All right, let's, as we look at the second part of chapter, uh, or verse three, where it says, um, Worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul here is continuing to describe who believers in Christ are. All of these are conditions of circumcised hearts. Worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Conditions of, cir- uncircum- of circumcised hearts. Of being unstubborn to the words and work of Christ. To faith in the work of Christ that results in that work of Christ being counted to them as righteousness or blamelessness. One can only worship by the Holy Spirit of God when the Holy Spirit is within somebody. The Holy Spirit can only be within someone when they are righteous or blameless. God cannot abide or he can't accept or be with unrighteousness or sin. He cannot be close to it. And Christ is the only one who fulfilled the entire law perfectly and yet chose to obey God the Father and take the penalty for our unrighteousness. Because of Christ, all who believe can have the Holy Spirit within them. This is the good news. 
that Christ was perfect in every way. Christ shares his righteousness with us if only we are not too stubborn to not reject it. With Christ's righteousness accounted to us, God can now dwell in us through the Holy Spirit. All of this um, is to the glory of Christ. Christ did the work. We cannot do this. So there is no reason to have confidence in the flesh. And all God's people say, rejoice in the Lord. All right, let's keep going in verse 4 through 6. It says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. All right, so let's unpack that a little bit. Um, Paul, Paul's confidence, um, Paul's once misplaced righteousness, right? So he's got a, uh, he thinks he has a righteousness before his conversion, that, um, that is in a number of different things, right? And it's, we, we would look at that now, and we say that's, and he was, as well would say that's a misplaced righteousness. And what, how is he misplacing that? Well, he has confidence in the flesh. Paul has certainty in his goodness. Um, Paul has overestimated his ability to live up to God's standard of goodness, and he's underestimated the requirements for God's goodness, or of God for goodness. In verses 4 to 6, Paul goes back to the path not to follow, right? So he's, he's kind of going from uh, do this, don't do this, now do this, now uh, don't do this, what I was doing, right? Um, the path he was on before his conversion uh, a path that elevates the work of man and twists the goodness of God into a self-serving righteousness. Paul says he has more reason than anyone else to be confident in the flesh. His life was aligned with the instruction of God's or the instructions in God's law. He was circumcised on the eighth day, as described by God's law. He was of the people of Israel, who were God's chosen, blessed people. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the only two tribes to stay loyal to the line of David. Uh, he was a Hebrew of Hebrew. He was of this Hebrew lineage and dedicated to all things Hebrew. As to the law, a Pharisee, which this is one of the most uh, strict law-following sects of Judaism. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was, a, he was willing to hold others uh, to following God's law. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He wasn't perfect, but he was exemplary in keeping the law. Like David was called blameless before God, although we know that he was far from perfect. So how does that translate into the modern legalists? And uh, I've got a, a short list here that I've kind of made up, and I'm sure we could all have a little bit of fun with this and, uh, and make up some more, but, but here we go. Dedicated as an infant in the church. I was born of a Christian family. I regularly attend a Bible-believing church. I occasionally preach on Sunday. I only consume Christian media and news. I have the five solas stickered to the bumper of my car. I'm tattooed with John 3.16. I never dated. I only courted. I regularly practice church discipline when I see a follower of Christ in error. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with any of these or any of the things that Paul was doing, 
but they do not have the power to save. They don't have the power to save. You can bring your list of accomplishments to God, or you can't bring your list of accomplishments to God and obtain your salvation. God says you don't have enough of anything for salvation, but that little bit of sin that you do have is enough to condemn you. Jesus says in Matthew 5, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The passages from Deuteronomy and and Jeremiah that we read earlier, as well as other places in the Bible, describe the condition of our heart before conversion as stubborn, stiff-necked, uncircumcised, unclean. We are trying to do things in our own way, in our own power, to produce our own righteousness. Jesus changed Paul's heart through the blinding encounter on the road to Damascus, described in Acts Acts chapter 9. After that encounter, Paul wasn't blind toward God, but with a circumcised heart, obeyed God, and served in lifelong suffering for the sake uh, of the name of Christ. God is saying, stop trying to do this yourself. I have got this salvation thing and everything that comes after it. It is already done. Just submit in faith to what I have already done through Jesus Christ. Um, We'll keep reading in chapter, in verse 7. It says, blame, um, it says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul claim, here we see Paul claiming Christ's righteousness. Paul's world is flipped over. This was after his conversion. Paul let go of his stubborn heart and, and his closed ears, and he submitted to God. And, that, and in that, he was able to say, but whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul is laying claim to the righteousness of Christ and throwing away everything he thought he had before he knew Christ. In the the second part of verse 8, he reiterates and reinforces that everything before knowing Christ is a loss and is rubbish. It was a complete waste of time, a striving after the wind, as Solomon puts it. Nothing was gained. There was nothing to hold on to from his past efforts at righteousness. You know, maybe there were some things from his past that he could repurpose so others will know the gospel message. But he no longer sees those as integral to his salvation. God wants us to know him, and we can know God through Christ. We are stubborn, stiff-necked, uncircumcised, sinful people. And God cannot abide, accept, or dwell, or be with people who are sinful. So he provides a way, through Christ, taking the punishment for our sins so we can know him. God is righteous, he is just, full of steadfast love, mercy, excellence, and glorious. And he wants us to know him as such because he delights in knowing, um, he delights in us knowing him. And this leads to eternal life, which he wants for us to have because he is righteous, just, 
full of steadfast love, mercy, excellent and glorious. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 to 3, it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rain that water the earth. And in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, it says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And as we get to the New Testament, John 17, 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know me, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says eternal life is knowing God and Jesus whom God has sent. We can rejoice in the Lord in that. Knowledge of God through Christ is the eternal, it's the entirety of life and everything we need to live. Everything valuable in life, including life itself, is because of knowing Christ. It is centered on Christ, starts with Christ, flows from and to Christ and to the, to the delight of God and for our eternal good. The gain of Christ is the highest goal, and it is the easiest and the hardest thing ever. But once gained, it will never let go. The work of Christ is a gift. It is offered free, with the only string being that be, the only string being we must give up our life to have Christ. We can't live, we can't have both lives. We can't serve two masters. And herein lies um, many of our problems. We want or we desire to have both lives. We come to the ultimate fork in the road. We try to travel down both roads. The farther we get down one fork, the more difficult it becomes to cut back to the other road. Paul is telling, reminding us of the road to travel and the joys of traveling that road with Christ. Paul notes there will be suffering down that road, but with Christ, there is surpassing worth in that suffering. So now we get to the part about refinement. How does, how does that uh, suffering, uh, walking down that road with Christ, refine us? Well, let's go to verse 10. It says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So walking in relationship with Christ is not only includes the righteousness of um, Christ accounted to us, but also includes the power of Christ to defeat sin in our own lives. Now that we are reconciled to God, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling and working in us to change us to be more like Christ. Sanctification or becoming more like Christ happens in an environment of sharing in the suffering of Christ. Becoming more like Christ is the easiest and hardest thing you will ever do. Because we have to continually deny our desires 
and choose to continue to walk down that narrow road. Christ gives believers the power to defeat sin because it is a continual process that involves suffering the loss of things less valuable than Christ. Romans 6, and 23 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that brings us to uh, the last verse, verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So here we see our restoration, the resurrection from the dead. Paul attaining the resurrection from the dead is about the new, sinless, glorified body Christ promises when he meets uh, Christ in heaven. What will the path to Paul's restoration look like? Only God knows the path. Paul's life will take before, he's, before he is restored to a perfect relationship with God. He may never get out of prison. He may be executed there. He may get out and, and continue to plant and nurture churches into a ripe old age. Only God knows. But Paul says no matter what the path he see, he will, um, no matter what the path, he will see Jesus face to face. No matter what it looks like. He's there to run the race until he sees Jesus face to face. How does he know this? Well, he's depending in faith on Jesus Christ. So as we apply this, I want um, each of us to be honest with ourselves when we think about where our confidence is. There are some questions um, that, that can help us examine our hearts. Do wins in life uh, make life worth living? Can help, help you see what confidence you, where your confidence is placed. Do setbacks make life seem unbearable? Do events in life point you toward Christ? What do you rejoice in? When things are good, who or what do you credit the success? When things go sideways, who do you blame? How do you justify your goodness or your, or your righteousness or your blamelessness? By comparing to others? By the praise that you get from others? Do you enjoy retelling the gospel? Do you, do you enjoy retelling, uh, reciting the gospel? Do you enjoy encouraging fellow believers to rejoice in the Lord? Do you enjoy retelling how God has saved you and how um, right now you are share, God is having you share in the sufferings of Christ in your life to make him more like you. Do, you. do you enjoy that? And then lastly, remembering. Remember that in Christ, we have been given righteousness or blamelessness. In Christ, we have become more like Christ through suffering loss. And in Christ, we will be among the resurrected from the dead. Rejoice in the Lord.